Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Joining us today is Dr. Bruce Schulman. Dr. Schulman is the William E. Huntington Professor of History at Boston University and has authored three books, From Cotton Belt to Sunbelt from Oxford University Press, Lyndon B. Johnson and American Liberalism from St. Martin's Press, and The 70s, The Great Shift in American Culture, Politics, and Society from Free Press. Dr. Schulman also directs the Institute for American Political History at Boston University and is a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Dr. Schulman's essay, Islands in Time, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Decade, appears in the latest issue of the journal Reviews in American History. The essay is a comprehensive look at the decade book as a literary genre and traces its history and cultural influence over the last century. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Schulman. The first question I like to ask all our guests is um, just to get a little background. Can you tell us what your academic origin story is? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hate to admit it, but I suppose my story is at once utterly conventional and maybe a little bit unexpected. I mean, the utterly conventional part is, I think like maybe so many American historians of my generation, I owe my origins to a particularly unusual and inspirational high school history teacher. So back in those days, as I'm sure you know, high school history instruction was a really bad, drab, soulless, gutless, heartless, almost live human list um, <laughs> recitation of sort of boring facts and dates and names and no real context to it. And so I had this wonderful teacher, Mr. Backfish, who not only, you know, made us confront a wide variety of source materials, so primary documents, but also music. And he, in fact, did a Sunday radio show. So he is very much into music, art, news journalism, um, movies when we got into the 20th century and so on. So confronted, bringing history alive that way with that kind of direct engagement with a wide variety of source materials was part of it. But also, I think Mr. Backfish dramatized the presence of the past, its real impact on our daily lives, not only on the big things of politics and social and economic trends, but also how, let's say, Andrew Jackson and the spoil system could explain my hometown's weird Halloween rituals or the <laughs> presents, really the bribes my mother paid to the trash collectors so that they wouldn't accidentally on purpose spill trash, you know, on our, oh, on wow. our lawn, that kind of graph that happened in that town. So I got the idea that history um, was not only a discipline for studying and understanding the past, but could be a form of present day social criticism, that it was a way, and I came to think the best way to sort of reckon with and participate in debates about where American society and politics were and where they should be going. Mm. And so, I mean, I think maybe conventional that it was a high school teacher, unconventional in the kind of teacher it mm. was. Mm -hmm. To 
to maybe be a little bit more specific and so to try to explain how I came to do the kind of history I do, and especially my interest in the interactions between and interrelationships of politics and popular culture. I think that that sort of dates back to my earliest days in graduate school. When I entered graduate school in the early 1980s, American historical scholarship had had this long tradition of political history, rather straightforward studies of elections, public policy, um, political parties, and so on. Mm -hmm. And this then relatively new body of social history, what was called the new social history, mm -hmm. which was interested not only in the lived experience of previously marginalized actors, but also just understanding the everyday life of ordinary Americans. Mm. And those two literatures, those two sets of scholarship didn't really speak to each other. In fact, they were in many ways antagonistic to each other. And having being, you know, relatively young at the time, having learned about both of these things and not participated in the arguments between them, I became interested in trying to get into that gap to try to understand how politics and policy affected people's everyday lives and then how the everyday experiences of ordinary Americans shaped politics and policy making. Mm -hmm. And so that was really what my first book was about. And in the writing of that book, I came to understand that especially in the 20th century, the cultural realm had become such an important factor that if you wanted to understand how ordinary people created their own identities, how they thought of their relationships to each other, and to the larger world that you really had to dig into forms of popular cultural expression. So mm. all the rest of the work I've done since then has been trying to get into that relationship or that set of interactions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a wonderful answer. And I, and I love, I love hearing about your high school history teacher. He sounds amazing. <laughs> That sounds wonderful. Your essay in Reviews in American History is part of the journal's State of the Field series. Can you tell us how this essay came to be included in the journal and more specifically in the State of the Series section? The current leadership, the current editor of Reviews in American History, Ari Kalman, is I think doing something really exciting with that journal. Uh, for many years, it had always been something useful to scholars in the field, but it had mostly been relatively short book reviews of current publications. And it still does a lot of that, which is an important service. But I think Ari and his collaborators have tried to go beyond that and to really, you know, enlist historians to think more broadly about the kind of work they do and, you know, the ways that history is produced and consumed and how and why history matters, not only to scholars, but also to larger audiences. And the state of the field feature is part of that in which the editors ask different historians to sort of reckon with how things are going and why things are changing in certain areas of inquiry. 
And about two or three years ago now, I don't remember the, the exact date, um, they asked me to write of what I would consider a rather conventional state of the field piece on the field of which I've done most of my scholarly research, which is recent US political and cultural history. And I wrote a state of the field essay on um, US history since 1968 mm. and trying to make sense of the direction of American historical scholarship that's come out in the last quarter century, but focused on trying to make sense of the emergence of the contemporary United States and how it took shape since the end of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, that I did that piece. And then they liked that piece, and there were some fairly good reactions to it. And we kind of went back and forth about, they asked me if I would, you know, if I had other ideas for things that I would like to write. And I pitched this idea of trying to understand the decade, the decade, not just as a unit of chronological time, but as a kind of marker of cultural time, mm -hmm. how people sort of understand cultural development. And with that understanding of the decade and the way late 20th, early 21st century Americans tend to reckon cultural time in decades, um, the development of an entire genre of writing, the decade book, mm -hmm. of which there are dozens, if not hundreds of such books. And I myself had produced the decade book, which <laughs> is probably why I thought about this genre. And the book that it seemed to me created the genre of the decade book and as its legacy left us many of the still defining features of the genre, Frederick Lewis Allen's Only Yesterday, his book about the 1920s, which came out in 1931, well, it was marking a 90th anniversary. So that seemed like another reason to do this piece now. In the section Conversations with Ourselves, you note that Frederick Lewis Allen and many other decade historians document periods that they lived through, blurring the boundary between history and memoir. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to write your own decade book, The 70s, and specifically what led you to choose that period and how did your lived experience during that period inform your research? Well, it's probably will come as no surprise that I, I came of age during the 1970s. I went to high school and college during that decade. And certainly it was formative of my own identity and my own intellectual development. I think I came to write the book that it was almost a perfect storm that kind of blew together both professional and personal interests and even obsessions. Um, I, it really came out of my conviction as a historian and more specifically, my experiences as a teacher, teaching classes on the history of the United States since World War II, trying to make sense of the development of the modern United States. And when I began teaching those classes, one of the things I noticed was that the scholarly literature 
the not only the textbooks, but the but you know the kinds of scholarly literature you would use mostly petered out around 1968. <laughs> that there would be, you could buy a post-1945 US history textbook that was 500 pages long and it had 420 pages to get you to 1968. And then like three <laughs> chapters, all just about presidential administrations since then, even mm. though that was almost half of the chronological period. Mm. So to teach that period, you had to really begin to reckon with primary sources, mm -hmm. with memoirs, with all kinds of other material. But I think that for me, the problem was this, that I needed to make sense for myself and for my students of the contemporary United States. This place with its distrust, not only of government, but of all forms of established authority, the Hollywood studios, the medical profession, the legal profession, and so on, with its distrust of all forms of established authority, with its freewheeling, defiant, in-your-face cultural style, with its very complex wrestling with problems of racial and ethnic identity, with the fact of women in the classroom, on the athletic field, uh, in the workplace and even now in the speakership of the House of Representatives and the vice presidency, that if you wanted to make sense of that, it seemed to me that the 1970s were really the pivot point, that they were the place you needed to go to understand how all of this had started to develop if you want to unravel some of the contradictions that we're living with today. Mm -hmm. So there was that you know, quite urgent professional need. But on the other hand, or not on the other hand, in addition to that, there was also a kind of personal reckoning with my own coming of age, trying to make sense of my own intellectual formation. But also, I think, I don't know if we want to call it a rivalry, but a, a certain conviction that the people who had come of age in the 1960s that always talked about how great and how pivotal <laughs> and how decisive the 1960s were. Um, a sense of tiredness, weariness with that <laughs> and rebellion against that. So in mm -hmm. some ways, I was trying to speak for my own, you know, generation or for the people who had come of age in the 1970s and kind of push back against that 1960s centric understanding mm -hmm. of modern US history. And so the personal and the political blended together. But mm -hmm. I think what was interesting about that was even though in some ways you could read my book on the 70s as autobiographical, even though I am not in it at all except briefly in the preface, <laughs> and I very intentionally kept myself out of it. Um, you can, in some ways, read it as kind of an autobiography uh, of a kind. But on the other hand, there were some things that I didn't include in the book, just because they seemed too close. They seemed too close to me in mm, some ways. Mm, mm. That's interesting. And, and, and thank you for that. Uh, one of those clinging to the sixties as the best is, you know, is my dad. So I've, I've heard that I've heard, that, I've heard that growing up as well. Uh, thank you for that laugh. That made me smile. Um,
Do you think that we as a society sort of cling to the notion of a decade because it allows us a sense of a fresh start, um, despite the fact that nothing changes in between, for example, December 1979 and January 1980? It's pretty much the same era. Do you think the dawn of a new decade carries with it a hope that we might want or need kind of like a, a bigger version of New Year's Eve? I mean, I think that is certainly part of the appeal of it, not you know, to the extent that, you know, the, those years that end with zero seem like particularly resonant markers. And when, when digits roll around to zero again, that sense of a new beginning perhaps is enhanced. But I think I would em emphasize something else. Hmm. To me, I think the appeal, the lingering appeal of the idea of the decade, which as you've suggested is in some ways ridiculous, <laughs> Things don't no, neatly change or fall into these 10-year intervals that begin and end with the zeros and nines. Um, history doesn't work that way so neatly. Um, I think that part of the reason that we cling to the idea is because central to the idea of the decade is an assumption, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, of shared experience. And that in a nation and in a world that where fragmentation seems the order of the day and people have such different perspectives and experiences and are interested in such different things that you and I might not have heard of the kinds of things that we are thinking about, reading, watching, listening to, et cetera, that the idea of a decade having a particular spirit or zeitgeist or cultural set of cultural affiliations and norms and experiences, that that is very appealing. Mm -hmm. And I think that has something to do with its lingering impact. I wonder, and I speculate on this at the very end of the article in Reviews in American History, if the decade is not disappearing now, beginning to lose resonance in the 21st century. Certainly there have been fewer decade books about the last decade of the 20th century and the first two decades of the 21st than there were about, let's say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm -hmm. Now you could say that's not, that, that has to do with the nearness in time right. that we've we wouldn't expect there to be decade books or reckonings with the 2010s yet. We're only in 2021. But there have been almost no decade books about the 1990s or about the first decade of the 21st century. And there are probably a lot of reasons for that. But I wonder if that we no longer live in the era of network television of the big Hollywood studios, of the, the big record labels, of the big publishing companies, of a handful of nationally circulated magazines that had readerships in the tens of millions. And so that without that, that common set of cultural markers that we can think, and you know, in the age of network TV, Everybody was watching pretty much the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And even if they weren't watching it, 
they were sort of from, if you referred to it, most, most Americans, a majority would have been familiar with right. Mary Tyler Moore or right. MASH or Dick Van Dyke or whatever it might be. And so that with that, the loss of that set of common cultural ref, reference, that maybe the decade just makes less sense. Hmm. We'll see if, if the decade book has a revival or not. That's interesting. And that actually, you, you've sort of inadvertently made me feel better about my own age a bit. And I'll tell you why. I frequently will look up, uh, you know, I, I part of my job is to do social media. And so I will oftentimes look up, you know, what happened today in history as mm -hmm. just as a way to tie in content. So if today is this author's birthday, I say, great, I can figure out a, a journal article about that. And so I'll frequently scroll down and see, you know, people, famous people born today. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, anybody that's that's in like the later, you know, born after like 1980, I don't know who they are. And and they frequently it'll just say TikTok star or, you know, YouTube star. And I'm like, man, I'm getting old because I don't know who these famous people are whose birthdays it is today. But then I don't, I don't, I kind of, to your point though, I don't think that's necessarily just, oh, I'm of a, I'm a woman of a certain age. It's more just like, there isn't the shared experience. There isn't four networks that we can pick from. You know, there's just so much that we we don't have a collective understanding of who the most famous people are who were born on this day. That just kind of doesn't exist anymore. So thank you for making me feel a little bit less out of touch. Perhaps it's the times and not just my, uh, <laughs> my lack of understanding. I particularly love the portion of your piece that uh, explained Frederick Allen's curating and translating of culture into accessible content. And you referred to him as, quote, what we might today in different contexts call him an influencer. Do you think that there could be a place in the future for decade retrospectives that focus just on digital media? I mean, to your point, we're not, you know, we're not on a three network TV screen anymore. Do you think something like, you know, TikTok in the 2020s could be a decade piece of, of content or literature that someone's producing in the future or are things just moving sort of too fast for that kind of retrospective now? Uh, I think that's a really good question. If you were to try to put yourself in the place of someone trying to make sense of the 2020s, you know, 20 years after that, someone who you know, is in their teens or early 20s now and who as a middle-aged person is writing a decade retrospective on that, you would have to think that social media would form and digi digital media more generally would form the lion's share of the source material for, for that person. Mm -hmm. I mean, there'll be all kinds of questions of access Mm. to that kind of digital material, which I couldn't begin to anticipate how that will be resolved in 20 or 30 years. But in a funny way, Frederick Lewis Allen, even though he's working nearly a century ago, offers an interesting model. If you look at the Frederick Lewis Allen archive in the Library of Congress, in the files that he collected, as he was writing only yesterday. There are these, I guess we would call them scrapbooks, just pages and pages and pages of advertisements from newspapers and magazines that he cut out. Advertisements for shoes and hats and whatnot um, was his way of trying to, you know, 
scroll through the <laughs> new media of the time right. and to try to identify important trends and development. So yeah, you could imagine that, you know, the Frederick Lewis Allen of the future will be doing something similar, but literally scrolling through mm-hmm. a wide variety of digital media. Screenshotting mm-hmm. memes instead. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, in your piece, you reference many different decade books. Um, are there any that you want to kind of call out as your personal favorite? Um, that's a hard question because I really like a lot of them. <laughs> and, and I personally know the authors of many ah, of well, them. I don't want to so cause I any, don't, I don't want to cause any rifts. To all of you, if any of you authors <laughs> here that you should know that I think highly of many of your books. That said, I think I would point out two of them. One, a mm. fairly recent book and one one of the older books, and one that you might not normally think of as a decade book, but I do. Mm. So the first, the recent book is uh, Jefferson Cowie's book about the 1970s called Staying Alive. That, I think, is a particularly creative, particularly elegantly written book, and it does what I see as one of the distinguishing features of the decade book, the interpenetration of politics, lived experience and popular culture, just so not only beautifully, but suggestively. Mm. So his reading of country music and the way it participates in, reflects, but also shapes the transformation of the blue collar working class in the 1970s, or his reading of a series of movies that feature working class main characters and how they at once capture, but also help to reshape the understanding of the working class at that crucial juncture. I think that book is not only well executed, but really just imaginative and compelling. Mm. One of my favorites, and I suppose one of the inspirations for my book, though, is uh, an earlier book. It came out in the early 1970s, and that's John Morton Blum's V Was for Victory, Mm. which, you know, is nominally not a decade book, but a history of the United States during World War II, or really a history of the United States home front Mm. during World War II, rather than the military history or the international diplomatic history. And certainly it is that, but I think that the book really falls into the tradition of the decade book because it identifies a specific chronological period as an island in time, as a coherent cultural and political moment. And it analyzes that moment by trying to figure out the interaction between politics and popular culture. Mm -hmm. Everything from cuisine to, um, to popular literature, to memoir, And also, I think more than anything else, what really attracts me to this book is how much you can tell that Blum is wrestling 
with his own experience as a young American coming of age right during this period, someone who when Franklin D. Roosevelt dies in the spring of 1945, can't understand who could be president now because had literally never experienced a world <laughs> in which anyone but Franklin D. Roosevelt was president of the United States. Mm. And so that attempt to reckon with his own experience of and disappointments in what came out of the World War II home front, mm. I think I think of V was for victory as a decade book. I think it kind of fulfills what I see as the major features of that genre. Mm -hmm. And it's it's long been one of my favorites. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. I will I'm going to add add those to my very long summer reading list, which is getting uh near impossible at this point, but I will keep that delusion alive. <laughs> um, so my last question is, what are you currently researching? What's next? Do you have any papers or book projects you'd like to um, tell us about? Yes, I'm at work on, and I have to admit, you know, hustling because I'm well behind schedule on a volume for a series called The Oxford History of the United States. So if you're not familiar with this series, this was a series that was launched a long time ago. It was actually launched in the early 1980s and it's had a kind of checkered history. Um, it was a, originally intended to kind of present that generation's take on US history in 12 chronological volumes and a couple of topical volumes. And I think that the creators of the series, you know, assume that within 15 or 20 years, it would be complete. But we're now 50 years later, and it's not yet complete. And as I said, it has a checkered history. So on the one hand, it has a fanatical following among readers. It has produced three Pulitzer Prize winners and a Bancroft Prize winner. That's the, that's the good news. But there have also been several volumes that authors worked on their books for 20 or 30 years and didn't finish them, or in a couple of cases, they weren't accepted as part of the series. And now even two cases in which the authors passed away before they completed their books. So I am not the first person to be writing the volume covering the period 1896 to 1929, mm. but I'm writing that volume for this series and, you know, trying to make sense of this period that marks, I think, the emergence of the modern United States mm. and really the, the, the transformation of and the consolidation of modern American nationhood. So this is the period in which Americans for the first time are consuming the same brand name goods across the country in which we are creating national audiences for cultural products like first recorded music and film and eventually network radio. When we're creating new instruments of national governance and a new set of relationships to the broader world, including the taking of formal empire and entry onto the world stage as a great power in the First World War. 
And we literally changed the face and the faces of the nation through mass migration and immigration from abroad. So uh, that's, that's my main work is trying to at long last finish this volume. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, good luck with that. Thank you so much for taking time out of that um, harrowing task to talk, to talk to us today about your essay, which again was such a delightful read. It really, I, it just sort of stuck with me for days. I kept thinking about it and thinking about you know, my, my personal lived experience and in, in my coming of age in the eighties. And I just, I don't know, I just really enjoyed it. And I'm excited for um, a, a broader audience to, to read it after listening to this podcast, we'll put the link to your paper in the write-up. And um, I hope that you get a little bit of relaxation this summer. And thank you so much for taking the time with us. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals.